What if I told you, beyond space and time, beyond reason, lies knowledge so profound, so transformative, it might be possible to lift this veil and see far beyond our wildest imaginations and desires. A veil so thin, it has torn in the ancient past and once again is quickly dissolving before our very eyes today. Ancient knowledge and technological advances are once again making their presence known in our world here and now, this very day. At Drilling Down, our deepest desire is to explore these widely avoided topics and connect them spiritually, practically, and profoundly to forever change the way we think and react to the great mysteries that lie before us. Drilling Down is available wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and review on iTunes to help get these truths into more hands. You can support Drilling Down with a Venmo payment of any amount to KyleGray88 to help keep the show free for all listening. If you want to sponsor Drilling Down with a product or service, email drillingdownpodcast at gmail.com and get your product and company promoted right here on the show. Thank you all for listening. There is more at stake than you can imagine. In a world where knowledge is being covered up at an alarming pace, we stand to fight back with the unapologetic truth. I believe we are living in the biblical end times, and wasting one single opportunity to get the truth out could literally mean life or death to you and those you love most. It's go time, you and me. Your support is appreciated. And now, let's get drilling. I don't know what you know about the lost city of Atlantis, but I'm guessing for those of you who are pretty well versed, you know a lot. And I'm guessing for those of you who just look at it like, I don't know, it's some stupid, you know, some stupid thing. And it really, you know, that people are trying to find in the ocean. It gets even dumber when I learn, you know, things about Plato and how he hardly even mentioned it just kind of in passing in a very quick story with a few of his friends. (laughs) And it blew up into this whole thing. So... And, you know, it has to do with Poseidon. It has to do with um, Atlas. It has to do with all these sets of twins being born. All right. So the deal with Atlantis is it can it can like anything else, guys. It can look like absolute crazy talk. Here's the thing. It was real. Now, was it real in the the exact definition that Plato had from well, they don't know if it's 9,000 years before Plato who lived before Christ or if it was 900. There's some grammatical things there. And what I don't want to do is get really into the weeds on things you can look up on Wikipedia in this episode. And that would be all things Atlantis. That would be what Plato described. That would be some inconsistencies. That would also be some, wow, really profound things that he said about this city that really seemed to pan out. What I'm going to do, for the most part, is not give the history of it like, oh, guys, I've listened to so many episodes leading up to studying this, and they're all they're all good, but they all regurgitate the same thing. So you know me. I am not about to throw up the same stuff you find everywhere else. I'm going to take the Bible's route, and I am going to look at what what could be going on from an ancient civilization— 
that the History Channel and everything that's, you know, really famous and exciting to look at now is talking about Anunnaki, ancient aliens, this hybrid type of alien race that started this planet and then checks in on it every once in a while, right? That's that's the going line that gets all the clicks. And we look at that and we say, eh. here's one thing as we start. If nothing else that I hope I can get ingrained into your mind. And I believe this with all of my heart. You may not believe this, but you can do your research and we'll talk someday. Uh, modern day, especially us in Western America. Now, again, I just checked my stats. I have like 10 listeners in Asia. So thank you so much for those of you over in Asia. For the most part, we are definitely here in North America uh, in South America as well. Quite a few. But for you in Asia, thank you. Uh, I, I can't speak for you, but I can say for us Americans over here, at least that it has been so ingrained in us. And I don't know where it comes from school, uh, the education of college. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, but we have this idea that people used to be cavemen. And again, that comes from evolution. And I am not an evolutionist, obviously. But that as you look back in history, people were idiots and they slowly became less of idiots. And then they slowly started like, you know, understanding they could build a fire uh, and then they moved out of caves and they went into rudimentary, you know, huts and cities and this kind of thing. And then eventually modern culture was born and we just kind of kept getting smarter and smarter uh, and technology and alchemy started happening and Greek fire and, you know, all the Roman aqueducts and all this incredible stuff was happening. And then we slipped into a dark ages and forgot it all. <laughs> Again, I, I don't believe in that 500 year thing. I can talk about that some other time. Uh, it was the Dark Ages was not what you think it was and not whatever history books have made it out to be. You don't just forget something. And that's interesting because I'll bring that back when it comes to the pyramids of Giza and the Sphinx. So we're led to believe and we're, again, programmed and conditioned to uh, believe that We've just gotten smarter over time, and then we think today here as we sit in the year that you're listening to this particular episode that we are the most advanced we've ever been in history. So simply as you work your way back to the beginning of history, people get dumber and dumber. Or if you want to be politically correct, less informed and less informed, or whatever it is, less educated, you know. Now, I will concede well, before I even concede, let me tell you, that's not the case. We're actually backwards. We're trying to catch up to what technology was before, I believe, the biblical flood. Genesis 6. Okay, so let me get that out there right now. We are we are less advanced now than we were, whatever you want to say, four, six, eight, nine thousand years ago, whatever you want to put it at. And I believe that with all my heart. Okay, so I will concede then after saying that, that there are components that we do today, that we live in today, that uh, are are a different kind of advanced. You know, if you want to take a look at, uh, no, they 
They did not have microscopes in the antediluvian before the flood. Uh, again, and I'll just say this is where people are putting Atlantis. So let's just just think Atlantis and, and all these things that, you know, Plato has said and that people have, uh, you know, said they have all this kind of technology. So I'm just comparing it to that. All right. You know, they don't have microscopes like we have. They don't have uh, they didn't have flat screen TVs like we have. Uh, they didn't, they don't have, they didn't have jet fighters that burn combustion fuel like we do. They weren't sending space shuttles to the moon. Uh, they didn't have cars like the Jetsons taking them around. However, thousands of many years ago, you want to place that. I don't care. Uh, so there's, gen there's genetic stuff we're doing now. Uh, I mean, as far as like DNA RNA type of stuff. So you get it. I'm not saying that they had better toasters 10,000 years ago than we have today. <laughs> okay. Okay. But what I am saying is they were far more advanced than us. And they had, now hang on, spiritual superpowers powering their technology which makes it way more advanced than ours now. Okay. And, and this is, I'm getting this from the Bible. You guys know if you're just dropping in because of this ridiculous title I put on this episode that lured you in. Fantastic. Hang with me. But also, you have lots of episodes to go back and listen to where I talk about the fact that after sin was introduced, Adam and Eve are punted from the garden. We see leading up, leading up to Noah's time. And we see in Genesis 6 that the fallen angels cohabitated, mated with human women, produced these demigods so the gods the fallen lowercase g gods angels they are they are absolutely there go read psalm 83 elohim some of them some of these watcher class angels according to the book of enoch came down 200 of them at mount hermon and formed a pack they united together and they had sex with human women producing Nephilim, which are demigods. A hybrid of fallen angel and human. Some of them were giants. Some of them were deformed. And they started to corrupt the entire earth with teaching the humans the dark arts that are way more advanced than we have today. And I've talked about this so often. Sacred geometry, the art of war, the art of cosmetics, the art of making incantations and spells out of roots and plants of the ground. Introducing a type of DMT, psilocybin, magic mushrooms into the equation. And anytime that happens, that is the porthole to where we can jump into demonic dimensions. 
That's the way they get it done. It always has been. With psychedelics. I have episodes on that. They corrupted all flesh, the Bible says. And I believe that they corrupted and had, you know, bestiality, sex with animals, woolly mammoths of the time. Dinosaurs are created, I believe. Or dinosaurs could have been before, between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Could have been before that too, before all things became without form and void. I've also talked about that plenty, but I do know that all flesh becomes corrupted and we start seeing things upon the earth that should not be here. And I, I admit, I would say Cyclops, Seder, dragons. I mean, if you want to read about Leviathan in the book of Job, you go ahead and do that. You do that and you sit there and you take Job at face value and you say, okay, what's God telling me about you know behemoth, but especially Leviathan? If you sit there and I told you to get a sketch pad out, read about Leviathan in the book of Job, which I have done thousands of times, sit there and literally draw out what God, what Yahweh is telling you Leviathan looks like, what his characteristics are, who he is, what he does, what he feels like, what he smells like, what he is able to emit from his mouth and nose. And I want you to take that sketch pad and I want you to draw exactly what God describes Leviathan as. And Job, many believe, is the oldest book of the Bible. And you tell me what that looks like. It's a dragon. And I mean dragon. The things that were roaming this earth, guys, before the flood, if you could teleport back to the time of Noah, after the time of Jared, you would... I think you, your heart would just blow up from what you see. It, the earth guys became so supernaturally, technologically advanced in a demonic way. And I believe that the pyramids at Giza and the Sphinx were built in this time. And I believe it has everything to do with the former Atlantis, which just, uh, you know, shockingly after the flood, here comes the, the Tower of Babel eventually, which I've talked about Nimrod a lot. And here comes this dispersion over all the earth. And Egypt is the one that quickly grabs these dark arts and holds on to them. Why? Because the pyramids were right there. They were still there after the flood. So was the Sphinx. And the guys, the pyramids at Giza were not a tomb. There were there are no kings buried in pyramids in any culture anywhere. They have their own crypts at the base of their tombs and they have their own, you know, very elaborate vaults that they're all buried in in different ways. There's no kings in pyramids. That's not what they were. People, we today can't build them. Now, I will concede and say we have giant excavators and GPS and everything like that. 
Could we, if we had all the resources of the world and really tried to do that feat, could we accomplish it? I mean, I'd have to say we probably could in the 20 years that they did it. But what what we couldn't do is make these monolithic structures as precise as they are, as calculated with the stars. We could do that because we have GPS, but you can't fit a a uh, a playing card or a credit card in between these cuts in the in these giant, enormous stones, let alone stones, stones that they didn't get from around their area. The pyramids at Giza were shipped in from a very far away place on a mountain. What in the world? Okay. Now I don't want to get into the, I don't want to get again, drug into the weeds on this. Okay. Cause we have a very long episode. Uh, but I just want you to know that during this antediluvian time, that is when Atlantis, I believe was the place. Now, was it Anunnaki? What, you know, you can go back to the Sumerian accounts. You go back to all these things, but in the end, guys, this is the civilization of the fallen angels after they had cohabitated with women. And when all earth was corrupted, it's so bad. And it's, there's no flesh that has not been corrupted that God sends the flood. Noah and his family are the only ones we're told that survive on land and every living creature on land is killed. But what about the seagoing ones? But what about the fallen angels weren't killed? They're, you know, so to speak, immortal, even though they're going to get their moment. The Nephilim, their physical bodies were killed, right? The demigods and their spiritual bodies continued on after the flood, which is where we get demons in the New Testament and today. And Sasquatch and I don't think UFOs. I think UFOs are more fallen angels biz. And maybe we'll get into that some. I've talked about that at length anyway. So my whole point is that we were way beyond where we're at now. And I believe the pyramids, the Sphinx, I, you know, the Sphinx is getting dated to this day. Even like Egyptologists do not want to admit this. They won't go out of the norm. But, you know, as much as I don't agree with Graham Hancock on evolution side of things, on ancient alien side of things, on psychedelics uh, side of things, I do love that he's going outside of the box and he's at least a voice challenging these Egyptologists saying, guys, the Sphinx was this was not eroded by sand this was eroded by water and you know it so when in the world was there water around the sphinx you know so so on and so on he dates it way back and now we have gobekli tepe which i've been studying since geez this would have been at my my last church even so like you're talking 2013 2014 and they've uncovered a lot from there that we'll talk about in a future podcast as well that i think kind of factors in here but anyway you have to get rid of the idea that we're just more advanced now than we were then. Once you scrap that, and once you understand that we're trying desperately to get back to where we were before the flood, and I don't mean me, I mean the Illuminati. Oh, Kyle, you didn't just, and I'm not talking about David Icke's, you know, rep, reptilian overlords. <laughs> I'm talking about the royal family bloodlines. Go listen to my New World Order, one, two, and three. Gary Wayne, I have some clips in there of him as well. That talks about these these orders that put themselves. They 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 desperately date their families and track their families' bloodlines to go all the way back to the Nephilim, these fallen angels, because they desperately 
want to bring back those times. That's why everything happened at the Tower of Babel. They weren't very far removed from that flood. When I think some type of a gibberim in Nimrod rose up and tried to do it all again in the sacred site. And I believe before the flood, things like the pyramid and all the different, there's different pyramids around the world that we definitely had a system of communication, teleportation, uh, ability to know more things about the galaxy and the stars than we even know today. And we are uncovering ancient civilizations across the globe, guys, that we pull up and we go, how? As we dig further down, we, we uncover another era and we go, how did they, how did they know this? There is no way they could have known this. Guys, the biblical account explains it all. There's also a, outside of Christianity, when you listen to things about Atlantis, Antarctica, you, uh, a big theory, and Graham Hancock supports this as well. A big theory is that, you know, the Pangea effect, the idea that at one point, and they will say millions of years ago, the entire earth was one giant continent. The land masses were. And then by some cataclysm, by some, and, and guys, Einstein has backed this up. The name of the guy who came out in the in the 30s, 20s and 30s that um, really made this famous that Einstein said, yes, this is absolutely a possibility. I don't remember his name. It starts with an H. It doesn't matter right now. He described how the Earth's crust can shift. And Einstein agreed with that wholeheartedly, meaning that it's almost like a Rubik's cube where the interior of it stays the same, but the crust can shift. And so they're talking about this idea that all the land used to be on the same in the one giant country, so to speak. But then as this Rubik's cube I mean, millions of years ago, they will say twisted that Antarctica, which was Atlantis, Atlantis moved up and got moved up into the to be now modern day Antarctica, which they would say why it's so frozen over by miles of, of ice. Eventually, everyone, you know died there but the ones that could get away got away and that's they say that's where they saw all of the 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 same temples appearing in different cultures around the world pyramids appearing in different cultures around the world the very same um not cradle boarded but elongated headed parakin skulls start appearing all over the world um different cultures that could have never known each other and they will say that is because the Atlanteans who were the beholders of that information and all that technology as the Rubik's Cube split and um, and uh, Atlantis moved up into it, Antarctica, uh, then, you know, the United States as it is today moved down and, and those countries that were in a warmer climate, you know, stayed. And then there are some countries in that Rub Rubik's Cube. I can't remember what. What countries that they believe didn't really get much of a change at all because they were kind of near the equator when the Rubik's Cube twisted and they kind of just stayed in that area, you know, as everything else kind of uh, other countries got massively changed, either from very cold to, to then again warmer or from warmer as Atlantis would have been to very cold. So 
it's those spots that they try to focus their digging on and everything saying this is the least changed, you know, from before this millions of years ago when this Rubik's Cube twisted. So my point is, is you're going to hear a lot of that throughout this podcast um, when I when I interdisperse the different um, um, uh, audio links and, and different things that I, I ripped. Uh, just so you know, that that's their claim. And so that's... That's brilliant. And I think that's very close. But you can see throughout this episode, guys, that a biblical flood explains it all. And one of mass catastrophe, one that the entire makeup of the continents changed over. God, I believe, twisted the Rubik's Cube because of how corrupt all things had become. All right. Keep that in mind. That's the view that I'm coming from. And as I read in Isaiah to start this off, (laughs) we see about an ancient civilization. I'm going to be going some from the Genesis 6 conspiracy by Gary Wayne. And again, I'll just be dropping random audio in here as we go from different perspectives. And I plan on wrapping up with um, some thoughts from myself, from other Christian authors, researchers like Timothy Alberino, Derek Gilbert, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, Josh Peck, some people that I've followed for a very long time that have some great things to say about this very idea of Atlantis, Antarctica, what the Nazis could have been doing there. We've covered that. Go listen to my Antarctica episode a few back. That is, uh, that's like one of my most highly listened to episodes. Um, Go listen to that. You're going to see some just weird stuff. And there is some weird stuff going on with Antarctica. Now, I'm not going to focus on Antarctica for this one because I did a lot in that last one. This will be more Atlantis slash fallen technology. And then what we're going to talk about when it comes to the Antichrist and ultimately leading to Armageddon. This is the end times in the Bible, how how uh, Satan is looking at bringing all of this back. That that wants to be my focus, but I will get into this whole idea of Atlantis and I want to talk about that. You knowing now that when when I talk about it, I'm coming from before the flood with the fallen angels had done and corrupted and brought in these dark arts and all of this incredible mystery, black ooze, Prometheus or Prometheus, however you want to say it, if you want to be official, Uh, you know, all of this primordial evil that was off planet, all this alien technology. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. In case you've forgotten Isaiah 23, two through nine and verse 11, I'll say it again. Be silent, you people of the island. And your merchants of Sidon, whom the seafarers have enriched, be ashamed, O Sidon, and you, O fortress of the sea, for the sea has spoken. Cross over to Tarshish, wail, you people of the island. Is this your city of revelry, the old, old city whose feet have taken her to settle in far off lands? Makes sense now, doesn't it? Who planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are renowned in the earth. The Lord Almighty planned it 
to bring low the pride, and this is what Plato talks about, the hubris of Atlantis, to bring low the pride of all the glory and to humble all who are renowned on earth. The Lord has stretched out his hand over the sea and made its kingdoms tremble. He has given an order concerning Phoenicia, who were the seafaring people, maybe the Atlanteans, the Canaanites afterwards, that her fortresses be destroyed. Well, that verse makes more sense now, doesn't it? It's a prophetic passage from Isaiah 23 that introduces this, I think, vividly painted picture of, of destruction of the famous ancient post-Diluvian city of Tyre by the Assyrians. It's the, the means by which Tyre's destruction is pretty baffling. For the catastrophe comes from the forces of nature and not at the hands of the Assyrians. Note that. Additionally, Tyre was not an island, but Tyre was a coastal city. So Isaiah 23, I think, is an encrypted prophecy. It holds three important cataclysmic events within its cryptic allegories. The destruction of Tyre is the first event. The second event is the description of the destruction of that famous city and island of antiquity and mythology. Yes, I believe that's Atlantis right there in Isaiah 23. Guys, within Isaiah's cryptic passage are significant, enigmatic, antilean, and antediluvian markers that one should not dismiss, particularly when considering other cryptic passages from Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Psalms which I think we're going to talk about here. First of all, consider that Tyre is cited as the bestower of crowns, which stirs up curious echoes of Nippur, the place where heaven met earth, the home of the ring lords, where antediluvian Nephilim kings were anointed and granted authority to rule. Note that as well, Isaiah presses on to declare that God brought low the pride and the glory of all the renown of the earth through a watery global catastrophe. As we learned previously, this is Gary Wayne coming from his book, The Genesis 6 Theory, the Book of Wisdom clearly applied pride figuratively to the reprobate Nephilim kings, just as Genesis clearly described the evil Nephilim potentates as heroes of old and men of renown. Even in 1995, the notion of a lost civilization was not a new idea. That notion has been around for a very long time. We can take that notion actually back thousands and thousands of years. The most famous example is Plato, the Greek philosopher Plato, who gave us the story of Atlantis. From Plato comes the story of Atlantis, a great advanced civilization which had navigating and seafaring skills, which could explore the world, which built gigantic buildings, which had advanced knowledge in every area, which was prosperous and powerful. But then Plato says that uh, corruption crept into this society, that it became cruel and avaricious. It became greedy. It began to impose its power around the world. And he has a very ringing phrase. He said that Atlantis ceased to wear its prosperity with moderation. And the suggestion is that it's this, this hubris, this conceit of Atlantis, that it had become so sure of itself 
that somehow the universe struck it down and we have the cataclysm of flood and, and disaster and Atlantis is submerged beneath the waves. Now, of course, the view of historians and academics is that Plato's story is just made up. He just made it up to make some political or philosophical point. But uh, this cannot be so. That view can't be right. I, I was very suspicious of that view the first time I heard it from a mainstream historian. Why are they saying that Plato made this up? Plato repeatedly states that it is a true story. And as we look into it further, we find something else, that Plato puts a date on the destruction of Atlantis. He says Atlantis was submerged beneath the waves in a huge global cataclysm 9,000 years before the time of Solon, we know Solon, we know who he was. Solon was a famous Greek lawmaker. He was an ancestor of Plato, as a matter of fact, about 200 years before Plato. And around 600 BC, Solon, the great Greek lawmaker, made a visit to Egypt. And in Egypt, the priests at a temple of Sais in the Delta told him the story of Atlantis. And they said that it was written on the walls of the temple. And he said, when did this happen? When was this great civilization destroyed? And they said 9,000 years ago, and that was in 600 BC. So that's 9,600 BC in our calendar. That's 11,600 years ago. Plato is telling us a great civilization was destroyed in a global cataclysm of flood 11,600 years ago. He's laughed at by all academics and historians. But then geology comes along, and lo and behold, what do we find? 11,600 years ago is a truly cataclysmic episode in geological history. It's called Meltwater Pulse 1b. We have a massive rise in sea level as the ice sheets on North America and Northern Europe just crumble and collapse into the ocean. If Plato made the whole thing up, he was just astonishingly on the money with the latest geology. And I think that we really have to reconsider our attitudes to these stories that have come down to us from the past. Academics have been too quick to dismiss them, too quick to say, oh, we figured the whole story out. There's no mystery there. Maybe there's a huge mystery there. Maybe we should listen to these clues and hints from the past that speak of a great civilization. So when I published Fingerprints of the Gods in 1995, it was at the end of a long lineage, going back to Plato and before, and of course, famously, Ignatius Donnelly in the 1900s, the early 1900s and late 1800s, wrote Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, which was a huge investigation of Atlantis. So this subject has been tackled again and again and again. And again, mainstream academia has said, no, it's impossible. There could be no lost civilization. We know everything about the past, and it's been dismissed. But the problem is that new evidence keeps coming out, which can't be explained by the existing historical model. New evidence that just doesn't fit the picture. And my sense is that this evidence is now becoming overwhelming and that we're reaching a tipping point. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year. But within our lifetimes, we are going to see a complete the new understanding of the past, or a radical revisioning of the past, and therefore of our place in the world as well. So what you have with the, if you're going to go with Plato's version, and again, you can listen to a ton of pot, different podcasts from anyone. Type in the lost city of Atlantis and hold on to your butts. Good luck. <laughs> you're going to get some ancient Greek mythology. And so that's where you lose a lot of people. I'm just going to make it simple for you listening. 
and say anytime the Greek mythology comes into it, just understand those are fallen angels. Those are lowercase Elohim, gods from the Bible. Remember, guys, after Babel, God assigned 70 different watcher class angels to go out and God basically says this. He says, you want to form against me at the Tower of Babel? You want to create your own governments? Fine, you can do it. Here you go. I'm confusing your language. You're getting dispersed over all the earth and each of you gets a lowercase God. They're real people. A God put over you, kind of in charge to govern you. Now, these fallen angels, guys, had free will the same as we do. Why would God create sin? Why would God create us with the ability to sin? Because we have free will and he loves us that much. We can choose him or we don't have to. The fallen angels are the same. And these watcher angels go out and they are quickly seduced into, like, let's say I'm put over the Asian continent. Okay. Let's say I'm put over, not continent, because they were broken up into the, you know, smaller. Let's say I'm put into Japan and I go there and I am going to slowly be worshiped by them because I'm, of course, a God. And slowly I just let Yahweh out of the equation and I'm controlling these people and I'm manifesting my powers in front of them. And I'm ruling them and they're worshiping me and they're making their babies to look like me with cradle boarding because they... They desperately want to, they're sacrificing even their kids to me. They're doing all these things to me because I'm a God. And these 70 gods that were sent out according to the Bible. Were then condemned by God in his divine counsel, Psalm 83. I've covered it enough. Go back and read it. They were condemned for turning all these people against him. After the Tower of Babel gang, God said, go out, create all these nations. These gods will be, you know, in charge of you. But I get one nation to myself and its name is Israel. So when we talk about Greek mythology and all that, it is truly fallen angels. And they get turned into different things in Chinese culture, in Japanese culture, uh, Mesopotamian culture, all of it. They are the fallen angels, the men of renown. Gary Wayne says, In the Atlantean tradition, modern Atlantean authors claim Poseidon was the angel slash son of God, a watcher, ruler, archon, to whom the consonant Atlantis was portioned out to while the balance of the earth was allotted to the other gods, to varying extents. Just as I already noted, oh, I didn't even realize he was going to go here before I just said all that. I'm good. Deuteronomy 23.8 describes the earth was divided amongst the sons of Israel, the sons of God, with gods. Depending on which biblical translation from the Masoretic text you choose to examine. In fact, Plato's work, Critteris, actually states that the gods divided up the earth, with Atlantis being Poseidon's portion. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Poseidon was the chief god and founder of the Atlantean civilization. The inheriting gods slash watchers 
were constructed temples, then constructed temples in their lands for worship and ritual sacrifice as cult centers. In Atlantis, Poseidon constructed his great temple for his bull cult in his capital city at the southern end of the continent. The gods in the Atlantean heritage were all known as intermediaries between man and chaos, otherwise identified as watchers, archons, and seraphim angels. Poseidon then proceeded to fall in love with a female of the human race named Cleto. Poseidon was also believed in legend to have lain with many other daughters of men, producing offspring through the illicit violations against laws of creation. Cleto was the daughter of Evener and Lucipe, who were both earthborn. Okay, I'm going to stop for a second. <laughs> I hope that I have done a good job in the past and leading up to this point so this all makes sense to you. So that you understand anytime you would roll your eyes and you would say, oh, Poseidon, Hercules, Atlas, oh, the Titans that were banished to below the earth and entombed, right? Go watch, now I know it's CG ridiculous, but go watch The Immortals if you want to see a, you know, a picturesque take on this. These are the 70 fallen angels who came down to Hermon and cohabitated with women. Those are the titans of old that God locked, locked up in Tartarus and Revelation says will only come back in the very end times when they are loosed to wreak havoc on the earth and they look like fire-breathing locust dragons. They're down there right now. And I believe they are in other dimensions. And again, those dimensions, the veil is being increasingly thinned out by what we're doing with quantum computers right now. The D-wave technology CERN. I'm not an expert on quantum computers, but from what I've studied uh, on Reddit, they have a whole subreddit called um, something like, and I, I can't remember, I'm always on Reddit, uh, something like explain like I am five, E-L-I five, explain like I'm five. So you take a complex thing and you put it out there and see who the smartest person in the room can explain it to you like you're a five-year-old. So I'll do that with quantum computers. And this is really funny. Like you dumb it down, but quantum computers, you ask them questions and they go find your answers in different dimensions. I know. So what answers are we getting back? So what happens when we tune that frequency just so, so that we're able to just hear a little bit into like a, like a fading radio station, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth dimension, a seventh and eighth dimension. What are we hearing? Can we communicate to those Titans who are locked away? And are they able to communicate back to us on how to get to the point where they want the end times to come about because they believe they can truly defeat Yahweh and his son, Jesus. They believe that. Now the Holy Spirit is here right now on earth. The restrainer is here, binding everything together, not letting those things rip loose. 
but I believe the grasp of the Holy Spirit is slowly letting go on purpose. We are seeing UFO disclosure. We are seeing the, um, all things that used to be just relegated to eye rolling again, uh, and tinfoil hat stuff to now being straight up what the military is disclosing to us. And that's what's going to happen. This idea, I believe they're going to, and I believe they have found things under Antarctica. And I believe that that could have been Atlantis. And I believe what they found under there, what the Nazis were going for, that restricted airspace right now, that is over parts of Antarctica. I believe that that is where these world leaders, again, are going to for some type of knowledge. Why are you going to Antarctica? I discussed that in my episode on Antarctica, but I believe that all of that stuff is going to be the thing that is thrown out there in the end times and said, we have been visited by ancient beings who started our race that have all the answers And they are here to help lead us into the future. Enter the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. I have debated going back and forth if I want to keep talking about Poseidon and other legends of the Titans, but... I'm not just know that you can find that anywhere. And they were, they were put in charge over Atlantis and one of their sons, Atlas rebelled. These are gods and demigods. This is before the flood gang. The Bible's book of Genesis In chapter 6, verse 9, begins the story of Noah and the flood, in which God sends a great deluge to rid the earth of sinners and start anew. Different versions of this same story exist in nearly every ancient tradition around the world. Going back 5,000 years, we have sacred texts that tell us there was an antediluvian civilization. There was a great flood and that there were survivors. The Mesopotamians speak of this in the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Egyptians speak of this in the Edfu creation text. Plato learned from the Egyptians that there was once a civilization called Atlantis that existed 9,000 years before his time. Plato wrote about the lost continent of Atlantis in two of his dialogues, Timaeus and Critias, around 360 BC. Historians and researchers have long debated whether this pre-flood civilization was purely mythological or actually existed. Arguments have been made suggesting remnants of Plato's destroyed civilization could be found at the South Pole. I think what happened in Antarctica was that approximately 13,000 years ago, that flourishing civilization that originally came from space and establishing its presence in Antarctica was flash frozen. We actually have ancient evidence of this in the form of Plato's dialogues, where he talks about the last days of Atlantis. 
that basically is informing us that Atlantis was an extraterrestrial colony that had established itself on Earth and that after a pole shift, Atlantis was moved under the ice where the South Pole currently is. As more and more pieces of the puzzle start to come together, might we soon be able to solve the mystery of the Antarctic continent? And if so, just what might we discover? Modern whistleblowers still argue that there is more about Antarctica that is being covered up than we think. There are entire bases down there, entire civilizations, that the world's governments are working with aliens. They know about the buried artifacts, they know about the ancient civilizations down there, and they know about the extraterrestrial civilizations that continue to operate in Antarctica at the very moment. It's totally possible that Antarctica contains an extraterrestrial home base on Earth. It's a totally isolated part of the planet. It's completely uninhabited, or was until recently. It's ideal. The time that Enoch writes about the evil that was on the Earth. It's about the Atlantean royal family and their descendants of gods and demigods. The demigods were godlike giants with golden hair, bold, strong heads, bright blue eyes, and voices that bellowed like Atlas from the depths of his mountain. Greeks referred to the Atlanteans as Titans. These are uncanny parallel descriptions of that of biblical Nephilim, Gary Wayne says, and must be one in the same. In fact, Egyptians described Atlanteans as having, and now I'll say this real quick. The Egyptians were the inheritors of the, they were the initial carry-oners of the technology of Atlantis and the dark arts. And they are the ones who brought it in and passed it on to where the Babylonians grabbed it. And all hell broke loose, right? Okay. I mean, we see, again, I've said it a million times, we see Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh and his sorcerers with the dark arts who are able to replicate many uh, of the plagues that God tells Moses and Aaron to go do just before the Exodus. They are able to replicate them, not with smoke and mirrors, not with David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear simply by rotating the stage you were sitting on. Yes, that's how he did it. Misdirection. But he, the Egyptians were able to do this with actual sorcery, uh, dark arts guys. You can call it technology that we don't even have today. We don't have it today. Yet we're smarter today than they were. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. yeah. Egyptians described Atlanteans as having fair skin, being very tall and certainly much taller than Egyptians, being blonde and red-haired with beards, having sharp aquiline features, and having slanted eyes and oval heads. <laughs> What's that look like? The Aztecs and Maya, too, remember the Atlanteans as very tall, fair-skinned and blonde or red-haired with beards or ruddy, rough skin, just as other accounts remember Atlanteans as tall, robust, fair-skinned with oval heads and bright blue eyes. The chief sources for Atlantean details stem from Plato's unfinished Critias from Timidius. Timaeus, sorry. 
Now, this is going to talk about the last two works of Plato and what he goes into, how he constructs this story of Atlantis. And, you know, people have asked, why has this not happened? Why had this not been talked about for so long before? Why is Plato the first guy to bring it up? All right. But uh, you can find that information really anywhere. And I believe it was talked about a lot before that and even touches into the, the Babylonian, the Sumerian the Enuma Elish um, things with uh, uh, things with Gilgamesh. So anyway, you have that in different societies as well, but here is the, the take that you're going to hear on Atlantis. Now keep in mind, what does this look like in comparison to what I just talked about coming out of the flood and the tower of Babel being dispersed over all the earth. This is what they believe. The Atlantean Empire spread itself over all the world. It was made up of 10 separate but allied kings and kingdoms. Now, listen, this is very important. Uh, I'm going to make a correlation here to back from the, you know, the kings of Atlantis and Revelation in the end times, what we expect to come in the future. So listen up, please. The Atlantean Empire spread itself over all the world. It was made up of 10 separate but allied kings and kingdoms that were ruled by 10 titan offspring of Poseidon and Plato. Plato described Atlantis in Critias as a mighty warring and conquering empire that was made of a system of alliances with other kingdoms. At its peak, Atlantis reigned over the northwest Africa, including modern-day Libya and Egypt. Oh. Wow, that's odd that Egypt carried on that tradition after the flood. And Southwest Europe, as far as Italy, according to the, um, and I don't know, come on, don't have a trail, Kyle, don't do it, to Sardinia. Hang on there, buddy. Hey, up, ma. Hey, up. According to the uh, Encyclopedia Americana and as cited in Timaeus. According to Frank Joseph, the mighty empire of Atlantis was made up of Aziz, the Yucatan, Mascaris, and the northern part of South America. Now, remember, we're, we're talking quite possibly before the Rubik's Cube twisted, or as I like to call it, the Great Flood of the Bible. And islands just off of Portugal, islands off the northwest coast of Africa, and Egypt, Morocco, blah, blah, blah. Plato described Atlanteans as great engineers and architects. The ten Atlantean potentiates resided or reigned judiciously as long as the divine spirit remained within them. But as the divine spirit or immortal spirit began to fade in them, so did their judicious reign. Interesting, huh? To this conclusion, Hercules and Theseus, according to Plerahawk, were archetypes of titanic wisdom and judicious rule. For Hercules strove for divine excellence through his perpetual perseverance that was crowned with victories, which demonstrates the triumph of his divine nature over his earthly nature. Theseus was described as not only displaying a great strength of body, but equal bravery and quickness alike, and a force to be reckoned with. According to Plato, the Atlanteans fell from their godlike status because of further inbreeding with humans. Yeah, he this account echoes Genesis 6, where God removed the illegal immortal spirit from Nephilim posterity that had been gained through sexual reproduction with fallen angels. It is also reminiscent of the Book of Enoch, where the giants became butchers of war because they knew their physical bodies were dying. 
Even though their immortal spirit was not, they knew their fate would be to roam the earth without physical form after their deaths as demons. Therefore, the demigods of Atlantis decided to vent their rage on an apple's on the apples of God's orchard, the fruit of Adam. Titans rebelled against the order of creation, making war against the gods and humankind. The fading away of the divine nature was attributed to the diluting of the demigod bloodlines through the intermarrying of mortals, thus causing the human nature to gain an upper hand over their divine nature. Ignatius Donnelly describes this deterioration of the spirit in this way. Though they still appeared divine, their nature had become filled with an unrighteous and avarice. An unrighteousness and avarice. Now, wow. Okay, so think about what's going on there. Uh, think about how much this looks familiar. It sounds familiar to the account of the reign of terror recorded in the Book of Wisdom. Thus, Hercules was drafted by Zeus to lead his war against the evil giants. Hercules killed, and we're going we're gonna to circle back here, guys, and make sense of this biblically. Tales about the lost city of Atlantis are as ancient as any story. A once great metropolis suddenly lost to the briny depths of the ocean as if it never existed at all. But did it exist? Is there any actual evidence that Atlantis was real? And if so, where was it? And what terrible event destroyed it? Let's find out in today's episode of... The legend of Atlantis dates back over 2,000 years ago to ancient Greece, where a famous philosopher named Plato first made mention of the fabled island. He described Atlantis as a near-perfect paradise. According to Plato, the people of Atlantis lived over 11,000 years ago. They were very rich and very powerful, and they used their mighty navy to control most of the known world. But as the story goes, being very rich and powerful wasn't enough for the greedy people of Atlantis. They decided to attack the ancient Greek city of Athens. Big mistake. The Greeks managed to beat back the attack, and Atlantis was punished harshly by the gods for their greed. Plato says that there were violent earthquakes, floods, and destruction. And in just one day and a night of disaster, the whole island sank into the sea disappearing forever into the briny depths of the ocean. It's a tragic tale to be sure, but is there any chance that it's true? Did an entire ancient city really sink into the ocean? And if so, where did it go? I know I'm killing all your, your bedtime stories from when you were little and mixing them with, well, Sunday school stories you might've heard if you went to church that were completely wrong. Hercules killed many rebellious giants, including two of the Encyclopedia Americana describes as the most formidable, Alcinous and Porphyrcon. I know I butchered that. The Encyclopedia Americana appears to be referencing Plutarch's recollection of Theseus and Hercules' violent romps through the ancient world. Theseus killed many evil giants, as did Hercules, by the very same methods employed by the evildoers. And he goes on to name, Gary Wayne does a bunch of these giants' names who murdered his, they murdered the victims by running them through with their heads. So, like, these giants didn't even need to, like, they didn't even need to rip your arms off, off their limbs. They could just headbutt you and kill you. 
Theseus further led armies against other armies led by giants. One wonders if Theseus fought with Zeus and Hercules against the Ant- uh, um, Atlanteans. Certainly, Theseus, Hercules, and Pericles all fought together in the war against the race of centaurs. The ten corrupted demigods then ruled, remember those ten rulers, with a heavy hand, for they held absolute power over their kingdoms and citizens. Hmm. Yes, the gods did. Atlantis backslid into corruption and violence. Atlantean kings succumbed to the enticements of power, wealth, and pride, which overran their spirits. Michael Bajan writes that the acquisition of wealth and power also lost the demigods their favor with the gods and brought them to their ruin. In her book, Isis Unveiled, Helena Blavatsky notes the Atlanteans were a nation of natural mediums that were led astray into a nation of black magicians that led them into war. And of course, you know Madame Blavatsky from uh, my episode back on, again, I say it a lot, Aleister Crowley and Thelema and what we get. And we'll talk more about Helena Blavatsky and you'll hear some stuff about Edward um, Casey. These are early 20th century and late 19th century, um, basically uh, mediums who really brought the idea of Atlantis being led by demigods and gods back into our culture to where we have them today. Gary Wayne goes on to say, the warlike ambitions of the Atlantean demigods displeased the gods. You see, the the half-human, half-god rampage upon the earth was now a bummer to the gods. Do you see the parallel where the fallen angels get a chance to go out and mix with humans before the flood? And the, slowly, what at least the book of Enoch says, the, the Nephilim got so corrupt And got so evil, they started eating themselves cannibalistically. They started warring on themselves and it was a giant mess. And they, their kings had become full of hubris and pride, which is what Plato's talking about with Atlantis, which is what, which is what we see in the book of Enoch, which again is not canon, but boy, the, the first uh, temple in, you know, the, the New Testament Jews and disciples certainly uh, read it a lot. goes on to say that the the gods were then disappointed in their children and were going to kill them all or knew they were at least going to die. And that's when things really got bad. So, boy, rabbit trail here, I guess. The idea that when I say demons are different than fallen angels, they absolutely are. And when I say like UFOs and the greys and all that stuff seems to act more like fallen angels, okay? And I won't get into that at the moment. Sasquatch seem to act more like demons, certainly with demonic possession. And um, that is a real thing these days, by the way, and demonic possession ministry and all that kind of stuff. Real good Christians that are into this deliverance ministry that do it well. They do it biblically. They do it in the name of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, not in their own power. Um, those, those who do it understand that demons are incredibly angry entities. They are irrational. They don't want to be your friend. They hate each other. They have demons that rank more powerful than them. And when they roam around their territories, they harass each other. Um, They war with each other. 
They turn on each other. They're absolute nasty things. They come from these Nephilim. Which the Bible says were around before the flood and after that. So somehow we get a second incursion. You know this. That happens, you know, before the Tower of Babel and then so forth as all the gods take uh, their 70 nations and disperse them out towards where we get after the Rubik's Cube spun where we get our nations today and where we get all these temples being built up to the gods as we uncover in ancient China, ancient Mayans, all over Israel, everywhere. All right. The warlike ambitions of the Atlantean demigods displeased the gods, causing the Atlantean gods' destruction shortly thereafter. Once more echoing Genesis, Zeus, therefore, employed Hercules and other notable titans to fight for him alongside the Greeks and against the Atlantean giants before the flood. The Atlantean giants gathered their armies and sought to gain a world empire, but they were checked by the Athenians. Timaeus recorded, Antediluvian Athens was a skilled and preeminent military city-state. She was the leader of the Hellenist Greeks. Zeus was decidedly distraught to see that an honorable race had backslidden into a most wretched state, as all earth and all flesh became corrupted. Just as in the Mesopotamian legends, and just as the Archons did, the gods gathered to plot the deluge against humankind. Zeus collected the gods in a meeting place known as the center of the world to inflict punishment upon the Atlanteans, again echoing Enoch's version of the deluge, where angels gathered at the beckoning of God's will to bring about his divine judgment in the form of a flood, earthquake, and massive volcanoes. This mythological center of the world was likely Nippur in the Sumerian legends. After the Atlanteans had lost a war to the Athenian um, Athenian alliance, Zeus and the other gods moved to destroy Atlantis with earthquakes and floods. The balance of the Plato legend from Critias was lost or unfinished, so we do not know what the punishment was to be. It ended with Zeus gathering the gods to punish the Atlanteans, but other legends do fill in the gaps. Legends abound that recount the infamous last years of war and tyranny that marred Atlantis when its corrupted kings were bent on world conquest, warring with the other great antediluvian civilizations before the flood. It was generally concluded by authors like Charles Berlitz that the worldwide phenomenon of the flood legends refers to the catastrophic sinking of Atlantis. The likely truth, though, is different from Berlitz's conclusion. Atlantis is merely a a recantation of part of the worldwide deluge cataclysm recorded in the Old Testament. Other legends and Plato suggest the Atlantis cataclysm was so imparted not by many gods, but by two, Zeus and Poseidon. Roman legends, too, recorded that Jupiter and Neptune partnered in the cataclysm that destroyed Atlantis. West African legends also support that the same conclusion, naming Poseidon as Oculum, the sea god, 
Now, biblical, Gnostic, and Mesopotamian legends, as you will recall, recant God and Leal gathering the angels slash gods together to work jointly in bringing about the cataclysm. Zeus sent the flood rains from the skies while Poseidon released the waters from the rivers hidden beneath the earth, eerily echoing biblical and Quran testimonies. The idea of Atlantis was conceptualized by the Greek philosopher Plato, who wrote about it in two of his works, Timaeus and Critias. In Plato's writing, the story goes like this. Socrates met with three men, Timaeus of Locri, Hermocrates of Syracuse, and Critias of Athens, in order to find out how Athens had interacted with other states in ancient times. That's when Critias stepped forward and told him a story. Now, bear with me here because it's sort of like a herded-through-the-grapevine type of situation. Critias had heard about it from his grandfather, who had heard from the poet Solon while the latter was in Egypt. There, Solon talked to Priest, who spoke of a legendary battle involving Egypt and Athens. As for the main city located there, its peculiarity was that it had concentric rings that alternated between water and land. The city was beautifully designed, had extravagant architecture, was home to kings and a strong military force, and was overall a marvel to behold. To top things off, it also held an abundance of precious metals, gold, and silver. For some unknown reason, Atlantis decided to wage war on the remainder of Asia and Europe. The only one to try to defend themselves against such a powerful enemy was Athens, who took on the Atlantean forces and defeated them, thus proving that Athens was actually superior to other states. Atlantis, having failed, fell out of favor with the deities, who destroyed the ancient civilization with massive earthquakes and floods that eventually sank the entire island into the sea. Man, those deities, what poor sports! In essence, the legend of Atlantis tries to show that Athens was the most powerful state. It's a story about a small but peaceful city, Athens, that triumphs over a powerful but corrupt one, Atlantis. So, the story certainly works as a tale about human greed and corruption, and the power that a small but just nation can hold over a tyrant. But was Plato just telling a tale, albeit a moral one, or still just a story? Or was he referring to actual historical events? According to Plato, the story came from about 9,000 years before his time and had been passed down by poets and other storytellers. Okay, so I want you to hang with me for a second as I talk about the Greek legends here. Um, this is really, really important and really cool because it does tie into the Bible. And this is just an example of how you can quickly pass something up in the Bible where there absolutely could possibly be a connection. So watch how this works. The 5th century CE... Greek poet Nanos wrote that Zeus hurled a world conf conflagration at the Titan kings, again suggesting that some kind of asteroid, he chucked some kind of asteroid at him. In a similar fashion, 
The Norse have an idea that their god, Edda, hurled stars from heaven into the ocean, causing the worldwide cataclysm. Okay, so, I mean, the Mayan legend, Chilambalam, recorded the deluge as being sparked by great pieces of smoke that fell from the sky into the oceans. Okay, you see these different cultures have the same story. And this could go on forever, guys. Legends from India recorded Brahma casting celestial projectiles into the oceans to destroy the giant Deita. Just as the Zoetro and Zend, Avesta recorded the three-headed star that fell from the heavens and into the oceans that caused the oceans to boil. Other legends, too, bear witness to the legends about an evil star that crashed into the ocean, and they go into more specific detail. These legends all seem to wrap themselves around allegories concerning the constellation of the Seven Sisters. Listen. The Pleiades. In legend, these seven sisters, known as Atlantises, daughters of Atlas, before being raised to the sky and into immortality, Mayan legends oddly remember survivors of the flood ascending to the heavens as the Pleiades. As the Greek legends go, two of the Pleiades stars were removed and sent to earth to destroy the world. The Hopi Indians regard the Pleiades as sisters and associate them with the deluge, just as the Cherokee, Iroquois, and other Native American nations of the lake states, Tennessee, and Carolinas have preserved stories regarding the same thing, describing stars from the Pleiades that crashed into the oceans with a fiery tail. The Aztecs, too, marked the Pleiades as the cause and the start of the Fourth Age, our epoch. Hawaiian legends recorded the earth became hot, the heavens turned about, and the earth was darkened by the rise of the Pleiades, just as the Aztec allies enshrined a temple dedicated to the meteorite that came from heaven and caused the deluge, the global flood. <laughs> Japanese legends recant the sky dragon devouring the Pleiades at this time, and West African legends describe the seven chains of the flood, which are in fact the Pleiades. Finally, Greek legends connect Orion and Azazel, the chief angel held accountable for bringing about the deluge, as being connected to the Pleiades. Orion was imagined as the great hunter put to death by Artemis after his pursuit of the Pleiades. Orion, the unknown great hunter, was also known in other Greek and Roman legends as the giant born from Poseidon and Gaia, the great mother. Even the Bible seems to connect the destruction of Atlantis with the Pleiades. What? Orion and the flood, when it says, Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades in Job 38.31? Can you loose the cords from Orion? And also in Amos 5.8-9. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns the blackness into dawn and the darkness darkens the day into night, who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. Job 9.9 Who has resisted him? And come out unscathed. He moves mountains without their knowing it. And overturns them in his anger. 
He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellation of the south. These biblical passages appear to refer to the conflagration of flood catastrophes recorded in legends all over the world, as well as the destruction of Atlantis, connecting both somehow with the Pleiades and Orion constellations. Sicily, 2015. Archaeologist Sebastiano Tusa excavates a shipwreck less than a mile off the coast, which has remained undisturbed for more than 2,600 years. His team dredges up an ancient payload of 39 metal ingots. Interestingly, spectrographic analysis of the recovered alloy reveals the compound is unlike anything ever found in the ancient or modern world. The interesting part about this is the composition of the ingots that they found. The metal is 80% copper and 20% zinc. There was other things found in it, but that's the majority of the composition. Now, zinc only occurs in nature as sphalerite. It's a zinc sulfur complex. In order to create zinc, which didn't come around until about a thousand years ago, you have to actually process the zinc out of this sulfide. They didn't have that technology back then. What was someone doing blending together copper, zinc, lead, nickel, iron? This is a complex alloy. This is nothing easy to do. It suggests the possibility that it could have special electrical or energetic properties that we don't even know about. People would not be expected to be making such a complex alloy back then. How is it possible that such an advanced alloy was manufactured over 2,600 years ago? Centuries before man had the technology to manipulate elements like zinc into metals. And what was its purpose? Based on the composition of this alloy, scientists believe what they have found is orichalcum, a metal associated with the legendary continent of Atlantis. According to Plato's 4th century dialogues, the Timaeus and Critias, Atlantis possessed a power and technology greater than any other civilization on Earth. It was founded and ruled over by the Greek god Poseidon, whose temple was covered in a precious metal called orichalcum, which translates to mountain copper. The composition of the alloy is not specified by Plato, but based on its electrical properties, color, and luster, scientists suggest that if it really did exist, it most likely consisted of copper mixed primarily with zinc, just like the metal found in the shipwreck. It was said that the temple of Poseidon on Atlantis flashed with the red light of orichalcum. The copper tint of this metal caught the attention of the seekers that came to this sacred place. This is not just an attractive color, 
This has spiritual implications. There was something about this metal that was said to resonate with the divine. Perhaps it was its origin, that it had come from heaven, it fell out of the sky. According to Plato's story, the Greek god Cadmus, son of Poseidon, came down from Mount Olympus and gave orichalcum to the people of Atlantis. An important figure in early Greek mythology was Cadmus, a divine character, the first hero, fifth in the lineage from Zeus of the Greek gods. It was Cadmus that brought the making of bronze. He knew how to make alloys, special metals, which in the early days of civilization was the beginning of technology. So Cadmus is the one who shows us the divine nature of metalwork and gives this as a gift to the generations. Why are we so quick to dismiss the underlying stories in those myths? Those stories talk about extraterrestrials coming and visiting our culture. They talk about gods that walked among us and interacted with humans, but with a severely advanced technology beyond anything that we have today. Ancient astronaut theory says that the legends of these Greek gods are not just mythological, but they're actually rooted in actual events. Listen, if you would, to Psalm chapter 18, verses 7 through 16. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced. With hailstones and bolts of lightning, the Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning and routed them all. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare at his rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of your breath from your nostrils, he reached down from on high and took hold of me, and he drew me out of the deep waters. There are a lot of beliefs surrounding the lost city of Atlantis. Some of them are outright crazy, and some of them are plausible. So let's look at the basic ideas here, and we can cut out a lot of the details. We know that Plato described the city, and he described it as a real place. And he was generally known for distinguishing what he was talking about. He claims that one of his associates got the story from a trip to Egypt. And that's an important detail that we'll get back to in a minute. So the basic story of Atlantis is that approximately, as the Egyptians recorded, 9,000 years previous, um, there was a larger island. It was described as being larger than Asia and had a somewhat rectangular but oblong shape. This is actually 
very reminiscent of the former continent Pangaea. Um, you can look at the screen to see that now. Um, in the story of Atlantis, uh, people are sacrificing bulls to the god Poseidon. Um, the thing is, in the past, many ancient religions sacrificed bulls to many people. This included the Egyptians, the ancient Jews, and worshippers of Baal. But that doesn't narrow it down at all because everybody else seems to have been doing it too. Okay, so we have examples of the gods having sex with and producing children with humans, creating stronger offspring. You see this in ancient Greek mythology, you see this in ancient Egyptian mythology, but you also see this in the Bible. Um, these offspring were called the Nephilim. They were a hybrid race between human and fallen angel. Okay, so, in the story of Atlantis, God is angered. He destroys the land via water. And a small number of people survive in boats. Now, this kind of reminds me of the story of Noah from Genesis. Noah and his family actually survive a flood of the entire world using the Ark. So, in the story of Atlantis, the people that survived the city sinking settled in Egypt, or near Egypt, actually. There was later a war with Egypt, that's part of the detail. So, the Bible states that the Ark rested on Mount uh, on a mountain in Turkey, Mount Ararat. This area had been populated for quite a few generations um, before the Egyptians would have gotten the story. And that's how there could have been a war with Egypt. Now, of course, some of their offspring would have later gone into the Egyptian culture. So, it's very possible that the lost city of Atlantis was actually on a lost continent that we now call Pangaea. Which means we're not going to look for it in the ocean. We're already on it. We are the survivors of Atlantis. Now what's really cool about this is what about all the ancient technology that is sometimes attributed to the Atlanteans? And I'm not talking about the science fiction aspects that you can find on the Sci-Fi channel. I'm talking about the ancient mercury vapor lamps, the ancient battery technology, the great depictions of ancient nuclear bombs, um, which actually have evidence still detectable today um, in higher than average background radiation and vitrified sand. 
and there are actually descriptions of flying metal cities above the clouds. And these are all documented in various cultures. Then there are the interconnected black mirrors, which you could gaze into once you energize them with a type of power. There is a school of thought that goes by the name of the Atlantis School. Those who belong to it believe that there was once a civilization on Earth that was highly advanced in terms of mathematics, astronomy, architecture and technology. It is believed that it was the Ice Age that brought about the end of this grand civilization and that some of the occult fields of study we have today, like astrology and numerology, are remnants of the sciences that this civilization had perfected. Among many Hindus, there is a lingering belief that knowledge from the Vedic times was more advanced than it is today. The antediluvian school believes that the Rishis were keepers of Atlantean knowledge. This belief fuels speculations that ancient Indians knew the science of in vitro fertilization. Here is one story that seems to fit this theory. Vyas blessed Gandhari and said she will be a mother to 100 sons. But Gandhari gave birth to a lump of dead flesh. Vyas had the ball divided into 100 pieces and stored in jars full of butter. After nine months, when the pots were broken, each of them was found to contain a male child. So technically speaking, Duryodhan was a test tube baby. Here is another story that seems to fuel speculations that ancient Indians possessed ballistic and nuclear weapons. After the Pandavas won the Mahabharat war, Ashwatthama decided to avenge the core of defeat by using the ultimate missile, the Brahmastra. Arjun fired a similar missile to counter Ashwatthama's weapon. But when Vyas warned them that the resulting explosion will burn up the forests, dry up the seas and bring about the destruction of the world, Arjun withdrew his weapon. Krishna dealt with Ashwatthama's weapon and cursed him to walk the earth forever, covered in sores and ulcers that would never heal. An offshoot of the antediluvian school is the science fiction school. It believes that only one thing can adequately explain the miracles of the ancient world. Aliens. Those who follow this school of thought believe that it was extraterrestrial intervention that brought about architectural wonders such as the pyramids of Egypt and the Stonehenge in England. There is a story in the Shiv Puran that is viewed by this school as being proof of alien warfare in ancient times. When the Asuras built the three cities of Tripura, they also got the boon that these cities could only be destroyed with a single arrow. Vishnu deluded the Asuras and Shiva chased the cities through the skies until they were aligned with each other. Then Shiva destroyed the cities with a single arrow. The science fiction school views this tale as an example of a battle between Atlanteans and extraterrestrial aliens. There is also the story of King Shalva attacking Krishna's city Dwarka in a flying saucer and being defeated and killed by Krishna. And we have all heard of the Pushpak Viman which Ravan used to abduct Sita. Some believe that accounts of flying vehicles in ancient times are only flights of fancy. Others believe that there is an element of truth in these tales. The truth can be one or the other, or it can be somewhere in the middle. But whatever the truth, until we know for sure, we can keep exercising our imaginations.
Even though Atlantis slid into corruption and violence before it was destroyed, it is still fondly remembered as a mythological civilization advanced in knowledge and technology. Atlantis was so advanced that the essential arts of civilization, the seven spurious sciences, were attributed to originating back to Atlantis through Egypt. One should note that the words arts and technologies were interchangeable in Old Greek. All this once more echoes the legends regarding the seven liberal arts inherited by Cain and his descendants. Certainly, perverted astronomy and astrology was one of the seven sacred sciences of Cain inherited by the evil Enoch, which Atlas was credited with perfecting to an art form. Atlanteans were revered as being the first civilians, the first navigators, the first merchants, the first colonizers, the first engineers, the first chemists, the first doctors. Not coincidentally, the Giza Mountains, inclusive of the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx, are believed by cutting-edge authors such as Graham Hancock to be memorials to a highly advanced civilization destroyed by the Flood. The esoteric thinker George Ivanovich Gurdjieff believed they were built by the Atlanteans. Again, this underscores biblical and Freemasonry records testifying to a similar advanced civilization that becomes mad from knowledge and power. The age of Atlantis was referred to in Egyptian mythology as the first time. The first time in Egyptian mythology was the antediluvian epoch, when the gods came down to the earth and the age where the gods first established their kingdoms. Again, reminiscent of Deuteronomy. This was the epoch of the gods, Zeptepi, which includes famous gods of the Egyptian pantheon, gods like Toth, Hermes, Osiris, Isis, Horus. <laughs> Go listen to my Aleister Crowley episode. Greeks, too, recorded the Golden Age, the first time, as an age when humans conversed with the gods directly. Mortal women had children by the gods, and there was no sadness. There was no requirement for work, and the food was abundant. In truth, many Greek legends assert that the Greek ancestors derived from the Ophites, the serpent people from the Western Sea, otherwise known as the Atlanteans. To this end, Greeks recorded that Ethiopia of antiquity was originally recorded as the coast of North Africa, a part of the original Atlantean Empire, as you will recall, and that Ethiopia also moved its literal location after the rise of the Moroccan Maritinkan Empire. Ethiopia was originally translated from Greek as Aetiops, the mountain of serpents. Guinan and his work An Ethiopic History notes Ethiopia was the post-Deluge appellation for Atlantis, stemming from the root Athiops of North Africa. Greeks, too, believe Atlantis derived from their first king, Atlas, and the mountains of Atlas. Hence, Plato recorded Atlantis as Atalantos Notos, the Atlantic Island. All this testifies to the validity of the Atlantis Empire being located to the north and the west of North Africa. Virginia Beach, Virginia, 1932. American psychic and healer Edgar Cayce, known as the Sleeping Prophet, gains worldwide attention 
by remotely diagnosing illnesses in patients located hundreds of miles away with an astounding degree of accuracy. He could diagnose people's physical problems. He could tell you what's in a book. He could find something at a great distance. He could even read the Akashic Record, the Book of Life. During one of his many psychic trances, Casey makes an astonishing claim regarding the Sphinx. Edgar Casey could tell you about prehistory and reincarnation and what your soul had been doing prior to this incarnation. He actually gave readings for his own soul that had been a high priest in ancient Egypt and was directly associated with the building of the Sphinx. Edgar Casey had in his readings a statement that the Sphinx and the pyramids were built in approximately 10,490 BC. There's a strong suggestion that the Casey readings were accurate and therefore their dating of the Sphinx and the pyramids also was accurate. Up until his death in 1945, Casey gave dozens of readings about the Sphinx. These readings claimed the Sphinx was directly related to an ancient civilization that many believe once existed here on Earth, the lost continent of Atlantis. The Edgar Casey readings specifically say that Atlantis, as recorded by Plato, was not a myth. He leaked that information given to him by the Egyptian priesthood and put it into his books, the Timaeus and the Critias. Here's the interesting thing. Plato describes that Atlantis existed exactly at the same time that ancient Egypt experienced what they referred to as a golden age. If the Casey readings about the existence of Atlantis are true, then might the Sphinx actually be a remnant from this advanced civilization? Perhaps further clues to this connection can be found with yet another Casey prophecy regarding the Sphinx. Casey dreamed that under the right paw of the Sphinx, there was a chamber at a very specific place that apparently hold the hall of records from the lost civilization of Atlantis, which Casey felt he was a direct part of. When Atlantis was sinking, the Atlanteans were aware of the importance of saving these records. And they also were aware of the need to hide the records of prehistory. If we locate the original Hall of Records, we would be essentially accessing the equivalent of a Google search engine, but it's the Atlantean internet. So the Sphinx is an entry point that could reveal once and for all that humankind is much older on Earth than we thought. The Giza Plateau, 1978. 45 years after Casey's reading, the Edgar Casey Foundation initiates the Sphinx Exploration Project for the sole purpose of locating secret chambers under the Sphinx that may lead to the Hall of Records. They were allowed, amazingly, to drill holes under the Sphinx to detect this possible chamber. They drilled eight holes. Unfortunately, nothing of certainty was found. 
They were stopped at the last minute. Apparently, they were very close, they felt, by the Egyptian army. We did find anomalies beneath the Sphinx. Now, these could be chambers, not just cracks or caves. Edgar Casey prophesied that in the future, and in the relatively near future, we would discover the secret chamber of the Hall of Records. One of the stories of the Sphinx is that there's a Hall of Records that's being kept there. Uh, certain machines and technology and, and libraries sealed in a special room. Until the time is right that we're ready to discover it, and that time may be coming soon. Just to recap, the originating line of dynastic kings was an elite group, both divine and semi-divine, gods and demigods. Put in biblical terms, watchers reigned first at the distribution of the earth, just as Deuteronomy recorded. These were the gods that built the ancient cities of Sumeria that humans later inherited, cities such as Uruk and Jericho. Note, neutero-gods, also translated as one who watches, neutero-gods were watchers. Fallen angels then procreated with the daughters of men, producing the demigods, the Nephilim, who reigned over ancient Egypt after the age of the gods. As the immortal spirit faded in the Nephilim slash semi-divine demigods, resulting from the edict of God that removed their illegal immortal spirits, the Nephilim became the evil giant potentials described in both the Bible and Atlantis. Mortal human hybrids as descendants of the Nephilim kings later inherited the throne around 2950 BCE. In the post-Diluvian epoch that began with Nimrod, which we've talked about at length, Central American legends reflecting the seven sages date back to the Olomecs circa 3000 BCE. They were credited with providing Central Americans with all their important cultural developments. The Olomec or Olomen, as they were called in Popovo, were part of the original race of East Yucatan. No one knows from what source the Olomecs received their knowledge, but some such as Gilbert and Cortel believe Olomecs were in direct contact with the Atlanteans or even another possible antediluvian society dominated by giants. A mission to the Antarctic has revealed fossilized plant roots preserved deep under the ocean since the time of the dinosaurs. It seems this freezing landscape was once home to a lush forest. 90 million years ago, a temperate rainforest existed in West Antarctica, only 900 kilometers away from the South Pole. Johan Klages and his team set out on a ship with a special drill to extract a core of material stretching down 30 meters into the sea floor. When we recovered the core, we could already see what's inside and that it was very unusual. And therefore we decided to scan them in a CT scanner back home. So what we see here is the, the overview of the CT-scanned core and the yellow strata we see now is the sandstone. And now we transition into the network of fossil roots. And we can nicely see how the roots are connected with each other and are pristinely preserved. 
We have thin roots, we have thick roots, and it's really a network as you would go to the forest near you and drill into the current forest. Studying the core, including analysis of fossilized pollen and spores, is revealing more about the environment of this ancient rainforest. It revealed a very warm temperature for this latitude and annual mean temperatures that are similar to those of northern Italy. It would be very certain that also dinosaurs and insects lived in that environment and in an environment that was dark for um, about four months uh, during the year because uh, we had the polar night. This was one of the warmest periods in Earth's history, with carbon dioxide levels several times higher than they are today. The new find provides a window into this ice-free polar world, and Johan hopes that studying these past extremes could help us prepare for the future. These extreme greenhouse climates are important for us to understand uh, in, in full detail because uh, it uh, allows a look into the future, how the planet might look like if we excessively um, emit uh, CO2 as we do right the Kishay now. Maya saw their first fathers all as sorcerers and wizards. The Historia Kamekia of Olomeca taught arts and crafts to civilization. Remember, Abbot Brasseur de Braunberg believed that Kolotekna originally came from the Atlantis. Edgar Casey, who we talked about earlier, which I think I called him Edward Casey for some reason, suggested that survivors from Atlantis escaped to both Egypt and Central America. Casey suggested Atlantean survivors formed the Central American Royal House of Atlan and was led by Iltar. Casey also just suggested Atlantean refugees not only brought a set of antediluvian knowledge to Egypt, but also to Central America, burying the knowledge somewhere in the Yucatan, while a third set was left at Atlantis. Casey further suggested the Hall of Records was buried in a chamber under the Sphinx. Casey additionally and unexpectedly named the three islands that were left in the wake of Atlantis' destruction as Poseidon, Arian, and Og. And we're going to see some of those from the Bible. Now, that was a lot, but I hope you're starting to see the comparisons from mostly secular ancient cultures to underscore what the Bible teaches. Now, if you just read the Bible, you are going to get the absolute minimum of any of this stuff. So, the skeptic can sit back and say, number one, you're making all this out of nothing. Well, you can't say that because it is actually in the Bible and it is repeated by Jude and Peter. But, okay, but you can say, well, it's in there so little that that's because God doesn't want us to worry about it. He doesn't want us to focus on it. Ryan Pedersen claims remains in the Middle East match up with incredible tales of the mythical beings in the Bible. According to Pedersen, the tale of Atlantis tallies with the incredible stories of superhuman giants known as Nephilim. Nephilim. 
The Nephilim were a race of half-human, half-angelic creatures created by fallen angels. Atlantis, first described by ancient Greek philosopher Plato in around 350 BC, was rumored to be a mythical island city. It was said to have suffered a catastrophic natural disaster and was permanently sunk beneath the waves somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea or the Atlantic Ocean. But Peterson is convinced Plato's description of Atlantis matches biblical records of the Israeli city of Gigal Rephaim. Peterson said the story of the Nephilim matches the tale of the Greek god Poseidon, who was said to have fathered children with a human woman in Atlantis. One example that really stood out for me is Plato's description of Atlantis. It's almost remarkable how similar it is to Ezekiel 31, which describes the rise of this fallen angel spawning many children and having a kingdom with an abundance of resources and rivers as well as military power and then having it crumble. In Plato's account, it was the Greek god Poseidon who fell in love with a human woman and impregnated her. So right from the onset, it was a god coming to an earthly realm and conceiving a child with a human woman in the same fashion of Genesis 6. Atlantis is described as having all sorts of minerals, gold, precious metals, and in a biblical account in Genesis 2, we're told that the rivers that ran out of the Garden of Eden encompassed the whole line of Avila. Today, the ancient remains of Gigal lie near Argaman in the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights. Atlantis was said to have been built outwards in concentric circles with water running through it. Similarly, Gigal features five concentric circles of stones built using 40,000 tons of rock, believed to date from around 3,000 years before Jesus' birth. It has earned the nickname the Stonehenge of the Middle East. He just wants us to go out into the world and let our light shine and tell everyone about Jesus until we die. Well, the Bible is so profound as I continually read through it. I'm amazed at the things that I glean and pick up that I haven't read in the last 375 times I read through the Bible. Okay. It's also so intricate and so profound that when, when someone leaves something, not out, but when someone leaves something uh, to, to very, a very small contingent, it's normally so that you go on a treasure hunt 
to the rest of the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about Bible code. I, I think that's bullcrap. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about being able to find and research from what's available uh, with the Greek, what's available with the Hebrew, what's available with the Masoretic texts and the Septuagint, what's available in, in Jewish tradition. Not only that, but what's available to us in the writings of people like Josephus, what's available to us in the writings of First Enoch, what's available to us in the book of Jubilees and Jasher, what's available to us in the even recent of uh, 80 years ago, the findings at Qumran, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they and the Essenes that lived in that area believed in a coming Messiah. Not only that, but attest to this book of Enoch and all of this supernatural stuff that our, uh, you know, when my kids were in elementary school, they would come back with homework that was on the Greek gods. And I would just laugh and I would think this they are absolutely positively close but they're off. You have to be willing to say, we have not yet caught up with where technology was before the flood until you are really going to get this and why the future Antichrist and his rebellious government is desperately right now trying this is hilarious. I'm not even kidding you. But as I'm speaking this, there is a call coming through on my iPhone that's a super long, weird number. And it says it's from Israel. <laughs> you know what? Oh, shoot. I, okay. I'm going to call it back. I'm going to call it back on air. Maybe this is a sign from God. Let's hear. Welcome to Verizon Wireless. Your call can now be completed as dial. Yeah, that's because it's a crap number from Israel. Shoot, man, I wish somebody would have picked up and it would have been our, our complete answer. Anyway, <laughs> you have to understand that that's where the Antichrist is going. That's been the goal ever since the Nephilim died out before the flood. Since the 70 were sent from Babel and we hoard after and worship these gods. That's the reason we are not we, the leaders of this insurgency, the bloodlines that trace themselves back to the Nephilim. The Antichrist and his army don't come out of nowhere. They've been working together under the guise of the Illuminati, under what's happening at Bohemian Grove, under what's happening at Davos, under what's happening with the Jesuits, under what's happening with world leaders, the, the, the true the Rothschilds, what's happening with these bloodlines of people who are trying to desperately set themselves up, talking to other dimensions, collect these things from an Antarctica, collect these things where we can bring the ancient knowledge back. And once we can do that, once we confuse with them, we will become something other than human. Once again, that's their desire. And they were a lot closer to it because they actually had it before the flood. They're desperately trying to get it back. Now, what in the world does the Bible have to say about it? And where is this all headed for our prophetic future? I would, I would 
I would assume that some of the technologies that they had in the antediluvian world were were very much analogous to the kind of technology that we use today as it pertains to vehicles of conveyance, weapons of war, and so forth. However, their, their technologies of communication, such as the technology we're using right now, cell phones, mm-hmm. laptops, and so forth, uh, I, I very highly doubt that those forms of technology were being imp- were being used in the in the antediluvian world. But certainly technologies of conveyance, certainly technologies uh, of warfare. Now, how advanced were these technologies? We can only speculate. Mm. Um, one of the problems that we encounter and anyone encounters when trying to look for um, the remains of antediluvian technology, what we might consider as high technologies, we don't really know what we're looking for. We use a very mechanistic form of technology today. Our technology is based on um, uh, Newton's laws of physics and and quantum mechanics and so forth. Uh, Our technology of, of our vehicles of conveyance, the ones that we use, not the ones that the deep military projects use, but the ones that we use, are based on internal combustion. We, we, we make things explode in order to create motion, in, or, in order to create inertia, motion. That's not necessarily the kind of technology that, that would have been employed in the antediluvian world by these advanced beings. In fact, I think that the technology that they were using, the sons of God, the, the, the watchers, as they're called in the, yes. in, in the, in the extra-biblical text, uh, was a technology uh, that would be... Would, would be more akin to what we call today UFOs. Um, these, these advanced aerial craft that are using some kind of a propulsionary system that is, that is totally different than internal combustion. They're not using jet fuel, in other words. They're, they're, there's some other kind of mechanisms. There are laws of physics that we have yet to uncover that obviously whoever is operating these, this craft in the atmospheres over pla- in the atmosphere over planet Earth, is 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 using a form of um, of energy that uh, that has yet to be discovered by the human race, or has been discovered but is simply not available to the general populace. That would be the kind of technology I would expect to find in in the antediluvian world. Why? Because, as I said, the the sons of God. The Benai Elohim that descended to the earth, these were not just spiritual beings. These are not, these are not purely metaphysical entities. Uh, these are beings that are coming from a very advanced civilization. And that's the way I think that people need to retool the way that they think about uh, the biblical narrative. When we talk about angels, when we talk about the sons of God, when we talk about the watchers, we're talking about citizens of a very advanced civilization, and in my opinion, an exceedingly old civilization, predating ours. In fact, the implements of human civilization come from their civilization. In other words, we are the beneficiaries of them. We benefit from their civilization. Mm-hmm. Our, our technology, um, our, our system of governance it's all modeled on something else. We didn't invent civilization. We inherited it. And I think this is clear. Um, it, it, these, are, uh, these are certainly assumptions, but I think they're logical assumptions on my part. I think that we are entitled to make these kind of logical inferences based on 
the narrative that we have in front of us, both in the biblical text, the the extra biblical text, and again in 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 the collective narrative of of the human race uh, going back centuries. So um, I probably veered really far away from the question that you asked me. I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> I was no, I asked about technology, which you answered. Like, what kind of technology did they have? And you absolutely um, did answer that. Um, Very advanced to... technology in most cases. Now, now here, now let me add, okay. add an, an addendum add to your sure. question there that I think is important. Okay. It does not necessarily mean, by the way, that the watchers were allowing the human race to use the same kind of technology that they were using. Mm. When the watchers arrived to planet Earth, they already had, they're coming from an advanced civilization. They didn't have to develop the technology on Earth. They already had it. Um, uh, some people might even ask, how did they get here? Did they just come through a, a portal? These are very general you terms. We don't really know what the heck a portal is. Um, a wormhole, a black hole. We, we really breach. don't know what these things are. These are theoretical abstractions. Uh, we can we can guess. We can say that some kind of a, a portal was opened up between dimensions and they and they and they pop through. Uh, that may be the case, but there's an easier answer. Maybe they came here in vehicles of conveyance. In other words, maybe they arrived in what we might consider as UFOs. Mm. So they probably arrived with this technology, and 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 there's no indication that they would have given it to us. Um, now they, they, according to the book of Enoch, they taught it to their offspring. They did. And the human race was led astray, uh, because of this illicit knowledge that the watchers gave to, to, to mankind. And part of that knowledge was, was the ability to make weapons of war in order to do battle with one another. But the watchers established an empire on the earth. Yes. And that's the key to understanding the antediluvian world. This was not... This was not a random occurrence. This was the construction of an empire on planet Earth, a, a global empire. This was part of the reason, this was part of the enticement of these watchers descending in the first place. They're no, they know, by the way, according to the extra biblical account, they know that, that when they do this thing, when okay, they trouble. rebel, when they uh, act in this insubordinate, insubordinate way against God, against the king, that there is going to be repercussion, mm. that there is going to be a ramification, that judgment will come at some point. They know this because they bind themselves by mutual mutual implications. In other words, they take an oath and they say, if, if, if one of us pays the price, we all pay the price for what we're about to do. That's a very so, stupid thing to do for 200. Well, I was just, that's, yes, it is. There was 200 of them, but something was enticing them. Some, there was a, something very powerful was enticing them. Now, now, uh, I like to extrapolate this because what, what could make it worth it for them to do what they were about to do, knowing that it would incur judgment, knowing that they're coming from this advanced civilization knowing that when they descend to the earth and they commit this transgression against the king of heaven, that the armies of heaven, that the king himself is going to be very angry with them and that judgment will ensue. So some, there, was, there, was a very, there was a very strong temptation to do what they did. It wasn't an afterthought. And, and in my opinion, obviously, the Bible uh, intimates that 
there's a component of lust involved. They lusted after human women. Remember, mm -hmm. according to the scriptures, the elder race, the our angelic, um, our angelic counterparts do not have females. They don't have females. Mm. Um, uh, you guys are very unique in the cosmos. The female component <laughs> of the human race is very unique in the cosmos. The, the, the angelic race doesn't have a female component. And so uh, when Adam was given a female component, when he was given um, a, a helpmate, as some versions of the Bible have it, uh, this would have sparked jealousy in the elder race. This is something, this is a special gift that was granted to the human race, to Adam, to mankind on planet Earth. And it's often overlooked. The idea of having a female counterpart is, 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 is tempting for several reasons to a race that doesn't. The first component is if we're like them, we look like them, and anatomically speaking, we're very much like them, then they would, there would be the element, the component of lust. And there was. They lusted after human women. That's the first <laughs> component. But the second component is that because mankind has a, a female counterpart, we can procreate, at least in a way that, that is very different. If there's procreation elsewhere in the universe, I don't know. But on Earth, it was a very specific procreation. It was between a man and a woman. So we had the ability, suddenly we had the, the ability to procreate and to make offspring for ourselves, to populate the Earth with our offspring. This was absolutely a temptation to the Watchers. So it's not just a question of lust. The fall of the Watchers is just, amount of, just as much about the desire to procreate as it was about the desire to have a wife, to have a female counterpart. Um, and then there's a third element that's probably the most overlooked. And that third element has to do with dominion. By the way, everything I'm saying here is spelled out in my upcoming book. Which, oh, lovely. Which, which you'll send to me. <laughs> sometime. I've been writing it and, and it will, it, it's going to come out soon. I don't know when. I've been working on it. All of these elements are spelled out in, in my book. Um, and people Stephen can go to my Coyle website in for information about that. I have this one. Yeah, that's True Legends by Steve Quayle. That's an excellent book. And I, and I, and I, and I definitely recommend it for, for people who are, uh, who are, who, who, who want to continue to fall down the um, rabbit hole. <laughs> To, to unpack this kind of information. But this third component, before I forget, that is essential to understanding the descent, the fall of the watchers, is dominion of the earth. The earth they is a realm. The earth is a realm, and you and I were made to be regents of this realm. And so the human race, Adam, was a regent of this realm. And so... By way of procreation, the Watchers could create a being that was human enough to also exert the authority, to claim the authority that Adam had in the earth. All right. So if you recognize that voice, and some of you did, that is Timothy Alberino. I have been following him for many years now as he has been on a lot of Indiana Jones type adventures, uh, both with 
of course, uh, when it comes to Skywatch TV, he was there for a while. He's gone from there now, and he is doing a lot with L.A. Marzulli, both in Peru and the island of Sardinia. He's going to have a lot of new and exciting stuff come out, but a lot of my research here was from his uh, new book called Birthright. That's Timothy Alberino birthright if you want to get that and what what he basically is talking about in that book from a christian perspective is that he is uh he is looking at what this realm of earth is and what it meant to the fallen angels basically how they had technology before us it's really everything that we're talking about here when it comes to atlantis you know so i hope you can see that we're trading the ideas that everybody's had for so many years for atlantis uh and this you know ancient akalu type of race that sort of thing to see that every culture in the world has their own version of a flood a deluge something that came and wiped everyone out they have their own versions of the giants and you see where the Bible takes really the least amount of time talking about any of that. Now, I think the reason for that is, is because Yahweh was trying to, at the point that we get the Bible, all this has been done. At the point that we get the Bible, we, Moses is already leading a, um, a full nation of Israelites out of exile in Egypt. You know, a lot of people don't think about that, that so much went on before this. And so every other culture had whether you know whether they wrote it before the bible it doesn't matter it doesn't mean it happened with them before the bible but there was god puts everything together the way he does because he wants the israelites remember that's who the old testament was written for the hebrews the israel the ancient israelites yes it's great we glean stuff out of it god can still use that and the holy spirit to help us today through it it's still living and active that's what i love about it but it was written for the ancient hebrews and one thing that god wasn't going to do is start talking about the other gods to them they were well aware of it he knew they were well aware of it all of the early church fathers and apostles disciples followers of jesus knew that too so that's why the Bible has very little to do with all of this because it was already out there. God says, I, I mean, what is the first commandment? You know, God is so adamant about saying, this is my word, the word of Yahweh. I am who I am and I am now giving it to you. Don't turn to the left or to the right. Stay straight on your path. Stare straight at me or you will start whoring after these other things. And that's exactly what happens in the antediluvian age. Now, that being said, uh, like I said, Timothy Aberino has a new book out called Birthright. And at the time of that last, you know, little thing I ripped right there, you he didn't have the book out yet, but he does now. So go get it. Read it. You'll love it. I'm sure. Uh, as did I. I'm going to talk about a few points that he's got uh, in this in his book called Birthright, where he um, he kind of goes he kind of goes between the Antediluvian Atlantis age and uh, what we have in the Bible. Uh, the fact that the biblical narrative unapologetically introduces us to a race of beings that are clearly alien in every sense of the world word. They're indisputably extraterrestrial. They're incalculably ancient. Indeed, these attributes, says uh, Timothy Alberino, are intentionally exemplified in one of the epitaphs most often used to describe them. It's called the morning stars. 
It's the extraterrestrial provenance of the morning stars is plainly communicated to Job by the maker himself. We've talked about this. God says, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements, God says? Surely you know, since you know it all. (laughs) This is a great portion of Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Were you there, Job? when the cornerstones of this universe were laid. And in that moment, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Timothy Alberino says in his new book, Birthright, may we deduce two logical conclusions from these verses. First, that they are not referring to literal stars, but the sentient sons of God. Obviously, we believe that here at this podcast. And second, that these sons of God are older than the earth itself, obviously, since they were present to witness the primordial formation. The motif of the morning star in biblical parlance is meant to convey pre-existence and preeminence. In John's revelation, Jesus declares, I am the root of the offspring of David. I'm the bright and morning star. While writing to the uh, brethren in uh, Colossae, Paul affirms the preeminence of Christ. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. And as the firstborn, not only from the dead, but over all creation, Jesus is the original morning star and the preeminent son of God. These epithets are more than descriptions of his attributes. They are proper titles assigned to the person of Christ alone. When employed in an informal and broader context, the connotation of the terms remain the same, but the persons they denote are of a different estate. The morning stars and the sons of God are children of the dawn, the second-born sons in the family, and they represent the elder race of beings that are both pre-existent and preeminent in relationship to all others, save the Son of God himself, the first and foremost over all creation. <laughs> it is it is really cool, you know, once you start getting a grasp on this, and thank goodness for how many, many years ago, the first time that I was ever introduced to any of this was 20 years ago by Chuck Missler. Now he's in heaven now, but man, I've said this oftentimes before, but that man needs more credit than I give him because he launched all of this. What an incredible um, way that he looked at the Hebrew and the Greek to be able to think outside the box and not just take what was being told to him in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s in the church pulpits, but to actually dive in and expose something that most pastors don't want to open on a Sunday morning. And boy, I mean, I had followed Chuck for years and years and years and just thought, boy, this guys he's out there, but I like it. <laughs> and here we are today. So... Uh, you know, a lot of this, I was, I'm just rereading. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I'm just rereading a book of his called, um, something like through the Bible in 24 hours by Chuck Missler. And basically you just take an hour and you go through each from Genesis to revelation. And he has this really cool, unique perspective, um, on the Bible. So 
when you do, uh, let's say, hour one that involves creation, he'll even talk about the gap theory. He'll talk about this this pre-existing um, culture, the the tohu wavohu, you know, that I've talked about many times when the earth was become had became without form and void and all that good stuff. So uh, there, is, you know, he's got a lot in that. So you want to pick that up? It's probably dirt cheap on uh, you know Amazon. Uh, for, you know, I get everything on my iPad. So via the Kindle app or the iBooks app, but that is, uh, through the Bibles or in 24 hours or something like that with Chuck Missler. But that's just a great one. That's a great, he gets into physics and man, I just, I don't know. I don't know why I wanted to tell you that, but you know, he, he introduced me to a lot of this stuff way back when. Um, so that is what it's important to understand. These angels were there. They were the original family of God. And when God creates Adam and Eve in his own likeness to rule over this place that the angels had once, I believe, had rulership over and had advanced kingdoms and everything before Genesis 1-2, that they had squandered it, they had rebelled, he laid waste to it, and he started over and he created it more beautifully than it ever had been. And then he created a new thing called man and woman with the ability to procreate. And he gives us dominion over the earth. Which is why instantly the Nakash in the garden tried to force us and successfully did so into sin, ruining everything. 200 of the angels come onto Mount Hermon and make a pact with each other and try to subdue the earth. All flesh becomes corrupted. It's in those moments and possibly even before that the idea of the Atlanteans were there. This ancient extraterrestrial race with advanced technology that ruled the world. It's not just for crazy people and non-Christians. It's in the Bible. The scriptures refer to the citizens of this celestial civil civilization as, of course, angels. But all of our all of our lives, right? You you've kind of just been told to look at angels as they are just uh, helpers and you know cute little things with wings. That's not the case. Reference to angels in the biblical narrative is ambiguous by design. In consequence of this intentional ambiguity, ambiguity, many fanciful nations notions have been uh, concocted regarding the nature and the function of this elder race. The Church of Rome, for example, has fabricated an entire angelic mythology modeled in the Greco-Roman style, complete with the figures of heroic angels sculpted in marble and painted on sanctuary walls. The anatomical depictions of these heavenly beings are the product of pure fantasy. The great cathedrals of Europe are covered in the sensual physiques of angelic females adorned in feathery wings and the pedophilic portraits of chubby cherubim usually depicted in the nude. Like the demigods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, the angels and the saints of the Roman Catholic Church are referred as minor, uh, uh, revered as minor deities. Human history bears witness to the fact that men are oft inclined to worship what they cannot comprehend. Timothy goes on from his new book, um, Birthright, and he says, Mankind did not invent civilization. He said that in that last interview. We inherited it. The benchmarks of a civilized society, sophisticated bureaucracy, social hierarchy, a criminal justice system, refined spoken and written language, technological advancement, military organization, and so forth, were already existent in the universe before Adam emerged 
from the earthly clay. In truth, we are the beneficiaries of the elder race, the recipients of their institutions and the co-inheritors of their kingdom. We are also the co-inheritors of their condemnation should we follow in their rebellion. And we did. Whereas the ambiguity of the word angel does little to illuminate the silhouette of our extraterrestrial predecessors, the term sons of God, Benaha Elohim, is much more, uh, it's, it's uniting the elder race and the human race in extraordinary ways. The sons of God is always and only used in the Old Testament to denote uh, non-procreated children of God. That is to say, beings who were not conceived in a womb, such as angels and Adam and Eve. So I- I've covered this, but I want to make sure you catch it that Adam and Eve were something different than anything else afterwards. They were made immortal. They were not going to die. Dr. Michael Heiser says this a lot, you know, like, yes, if they would have sat under an elephant or jumped under an elephant as it was sitting down or, you know, something, they could have been killed, but they weren't going to die from disease. They weren't going to die from old age. They just don't jump off a cliff. You know what I mean? But they didn't come out of a womb. That was the original design. Once we sin, they get booted. Of course, we they have children and... They live longer back then. Yes, there is some entropy before the flood. Yes, but I mean, they're just closer to perfection. And as you progress out over the thousands of years, we become further and further separated. But if you do believe, and you do not have to be a Christian to believe that the end times is going to be highly highly charged with the supernatural. If you're on the good side, you want to put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God and His Father, Yeshua, as the top species-unique Elohim. If you're on the bad side, you want to make sure that you are as close to that lineage of the rebellers, of those great monolithic ancient builders as you could possibly be. You will strive at nothing to trace your line back through that lineage. And that is exactly what many of these, when you laugh and say Illuminati, these world leaders have been doing. Why do you think it is that the production of a human and an angel always um, results in red hair, pale skin. Um, Because the the giant in Afghanistan had red hair. The giants in the Solomon Islands, I think they said, have red hair. I've never heard of an African-American or a black or a a tanned-looking giant. I'm going to say two things about that. First, I don't think it always does result in red hair. I think think when you talk about red hair, you're talking about a post-flood giant. And the reason why I think many of the giants um, allegedly have red hair is because of the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians? Of the Phoenicians. I think that the 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 Phoenicians were responsible for the diffusion of the genetics of the Rephaim, the Nephilim, the um, the Canaanitish tribes, 
uh, that inhabited the, the the land of Canaan. When I say Canaanitish, I'm just referencing those those tribes. There were there were many tribes that inhabited the land of Canaan. Yes. Some of them were tribes of giants. Oh, sure. Some yes. of them were of tribes yeah. of regular sized human beings who were, who had this race of giants intermingled into their populace. Mm-hmm. You know, the Philistines with Goliath, for Goliath. example. Yeah. Goliath was a giant intermingled into the populace of the Philistines. But some of those tribes were probably almost all giants, such as the Nephilim. Um, we know that the Anakim uh, were uh, giants as well. There's a lot of them. There's at least half a dozen tribes that uh, are definitely coming from the, the lineage of the Watchers in a post-flood context. But all of these Canaanitish tribes, all of the Canaanites after the, after the conquest of Canaan by, by Joshua, uh, remember, Joshua did not destroy all of the tribes like he was supposed to. The, the Hebrews were supposed to eradicate these tribes because they were eradicating the, the the seed, the offspring of the watchers that were still in the earth in a post-flood context. So um, the Canaanites consolidated in Sidon and Tyre, which uh, became um, eventually became the empire, the kingdom of the Phoenicians and other places as well. And the Phoenicians were, of course, the greatest seafarers, were also the greatest Masons on earth. In fact, the Masonic order, um, the, the order of Freemasonry, is believed to have its roots in Solomon. That's only partly true. It has its roots in the Phoenicians just as much as it has its roots in Solomon, because who built Solomon's temple? The Phoenicians built it. Why did Solomon employ them? Because they were the greatest Masons. And uh, they had, to a degree, they were able to, um, they were able to build megalithic constructions, but not to the same degree as their predecessors in the antediluvian world. Mm. They had the the remnants of um, of the knowledge to build megaliths, and we can see that for it's it's on a grand display on the island of Sardinia where there were over 30,000 megalithic towers, rough-hewn megalithic towers on the island of, of, uh, of Sardinia that were constructed in the Cyclopean style. And the Cyclopean style is the megalithic style. It's large blocks of stone, either hewn or rough-cut, that are held together, that are, are, are placed together without the use of mortar. They're assembled without mortar in a very particular style. This was called... Cyclopean architecture, Cyclopean, the Cyclopean style by the Greeks who attributed such constructions to the offspring of the gods, the, the, Cyclo, the, the Cyclopes. And so um, the island of Sardinia is very interesting. I, I have no doubt, none, that, uh, that it was inhabited by Canaanites, probably after the conquest of, of, Can- of the land of Canaan by Joshua. That's in your that there were giants three, among those inhabitants on the island of Sardinia, and that they had the knowledge of megalith building. Obviously, they built these rough-hewn towers, um, these uh, nuragi, as they're called. And the nuragi are built of, of rough-hewn stones, so the stones are, are very rough cut. However, at the top of the nuragi, you have these, and most of these st- towers are made, are made of basalt, volcanic rock, very hard. At the top of these towers, you, you have a platform of wood. It's gone now because it's rotted away over time, but there used to be a platform of wood at the top and supporting that platform 
were very finely cut stones, basalt, volcanic basalt stones, which were supporting it, buttresses. So whoever built those towers, over 30,000 of them, not all of them very large, but some of them over 100 feet, um, could assemble these rough-hewn stones in the Cyclopean style without mortar and had the knowledge to cut those stones very finely. And there's only one race on earth that could do that. One people, that was the Phoenicians. So I'll do an episode on Phoenicians at some point. I have crisscrossed and alluded to them before, mainly when it comes to the Freemasons, the Illuminati. You know, you're going to hear those words thrown around, the Rosicrucians. The, the, the families of blood power that are, are trying to keep their bloodlines pure all the way back to the line of Nimrod, who would be this great builder and warrior upon the earth. We've talked about him plenty. But really what he represents from before that time, um, just a little little known name in the lineage uh, of, of the, the families of, of Adam and Eve in, in the book of Genesis is a guy named Tubal-Cain, uh, who is really the perfecter and inventor. No doubt he lived, uh, I, I can't, I don't, I'm pretty sure it's not in the Bible, but he, he could easily live six, seven, 700 years. Imagine that long honing a craft, you know, of, of metallurgy, of stone masonry, of geometrical sciences, uh, especially since the fallen angels had mixed in magic with them and taught them these sacred sciences. What they, I mean, that's where I believe the, the pyramids of Giza came from. And a lot of the pyramids around the earth, they, they predate the flood even ancient technologies that these, that these people were building. That is what these, um, secret societies, these globalists now, uh, who want to be in the Antichrist's, you know, bosom <laughs> when he comes and he reigns in the end, they want to be on that side. They'll trace themselves all the way back to people, uh, along with the giants and the Phoenicians and try to get back to this angelic race as closely as they can in their bloodlines. Now, you know, you have to understand that when all I'm trying to do here, in this two and a half hours is help you understand when you hear Atlantis from now on or anything like that, you, your attention turns more to not to the, the, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, all the, the mythology that comes around with this place called Atlantis, but actually understanding the biblical timeline of how ancient technology was there before you and I. Erase the idea that we came from cavemen. Erase the idea that we are now at the pinnacle of knowledge, technology, science. We're not. We are truly slowly catching back up from a reset that happened at the flood. We're even catching up architecturally from where Nimrod was after the flood and some of that knowledge they carried through. If you can start understanding that, I think you're going to be better prepared for um, the end times. What little or much we go through of. Again, I'm pre-rapture guy, a pre-tribulational rapture guy, but if I'm wrong, you know, you better hold on. We better, we better have the faith and the strength to get through. Because what's coming, along with this UFO disclosure, 
that the Congress, our U.S. Congress is about to come out with here in 15 days. What's coming is an ancient race, an elder race, far superior to ours, that is coming for our dominion. Whose side will you be on? Aquaman hit theaters recently, and with it comes Hollywood's latest depiction of the legendary city of Atlantis. Now, I'm a big fan of superhero movies, and Aquaman especially, so this movie is really exciting to me, and it got me thinking, is the city of Atlantis mentioned in the Bible? Now, I'm not suggesting that there is an underwater city in the ocean populated with underwater people riding around on sharks. I'm really referring to the original story of the city of Atlantis written by Plato in the 300s BC in his Socratic dialogue, Timaeus and Critias. He wrote that Atlantis was a city on a giant island continent in the sea larger than Libya in Africa and Asia or Turkey. He said that it was a very fair and fertile land. He described them as being technologically accomplished with advanced architecture, including extravagant canals, bridges, baths, harbor installations, and barracks. In fact, he suggests that advances in engineering and science made the land bountiful, beautiful, and powerful. Plato wrote that the entire island experienced violent earthquakes and flooding and then sank into the sea in one day and one night. Of course, most historians agree that Plato was probably writing mythology, and I would agree that he probably made up most of what he wrote about Atlantis. However, Plato claims that he heard of the city from a man named Critias, who was retelling a story that his 90-year-old grandfather, Dropides, told him when he was 10. Dropides apparently heard the story from a man named Solon, who heard the story from the Egyptians. So here's my theory. What if the Egyptians had handed this story down orally for thousands of years, all the way to Solon, who passed it along to Dropides, who then passed it along to Critias and finally to Plato? First of all, if this is the case, the story would have changed significantly since its origin, since it was passed down through oral tradition. Secondly, Plato undoubtedly would have embellished and changed details about the story in order to make certain political and cultural points that he meant to make with his dialogue. I think that if there was such a place, there would certainly be some elements of truth in his story mixed with a lot that has been made up. Believe it or not, many parts of his story actually do parallel the biblical description of what the world was like during the time of Noah, before the worldwide flood spoken of in Genesis chapter 7. The pre-flood humans, like the Atlanteans, probably lived on one large continent island in the middle of the sea. Today we call it Pangaea. Geologists agree that the continents of the world were likely connected at some point in the past. Of course, atheists insist that this must have been millions of years ago, but the Bible describes the land being divided shortly after the violent effects of the flood that undoubtedly caused a great deal of change in the geological structure of the Earth's crust. Noah's son, Shem, had a great-great-grandson named Peleg about a hundred years after the flood. In Genesis 25, the Bible tells us that he received his name because in his days was the Earth divided. 
Peleg's name actually means watercourse and comes from a Hebrew root word that means to split or divide. So his name actually indicates that the earth was divided by water during his lifetime. Also like Plato's Atlantis, the pre-flood world was probably a very fertile world. During the creation account, the Bible describes a layer of water that God set above the atmosphere that likely provided a perfect climate around the globe and may have also blocked harmful rays from the sun. Of course, this water would have come crashing down during the flood. Not only that, but like the story of Atlantis, before the flood, men were probably incredibly advanced technologically. Now, we often think of ancient man as cavemen who could barely start a fire, but that doesn't fit with the biblical narrative or archaeological evidence. The Bible says that early men lived for nearly a millennium each. Adam lived 930 years, his son Seth 912, and his grandson Enos lived 905 years. And this continued for around 2,000 years until the flood, based on the timeline given to us in Genesis 5. This long life was probably the result of them having less genetic defects, which developed naturally in any species over time, and due to the perfect atmospheric conditions that they lived in. Can you imagine how much you could learn, invent, and accomplish if you lived for 900 years? In just the last 200 years, our civilization has invented computers, television, the light bulb, automobiles, airplanes, telephones, cell phones, and automatic weapons, to name just a few. What could have been invented during 2,000 years of humanity with each person living for hundreds and hundreds of years? Well, actually, through the Bible as well as archaeology, we do know some of the advancements that the pre-flood men accomplished. Genesis 4 tells us of a man named Tubal-Cain who lived before the flood. He's described as an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. These men actually had great ability in their trades because they were able to practice them for hundreds of years. In fact, Ron Wyatt, who arguably found the most convincing location of the resting place of Noah's Ark, tested metal that he found fossilized at the site and found it to be manganese. Manganese is a space-age metal that we have not developed until recent history, but it's not unlikely that it may have been developed before our modern day, in the thousands of years before the flood. And that's not all. Many artifacts, including an intricately designed metal bell discovered in 1944, have been found fossilized inside of coal. Coal is a fossil fuel thought to be formed over millions of years long before man existed, yet advanced designs of man-made items are found inside. That sounds to me like evidence that coal was created as a result of the violent effects of a flood destroying an advanced ancient civilization, just as the Bible says. Archaeologists have even found evidence of ancient airplanes and light bulbs in Egypt, and in Babylon, ancient batteries. The ancient people of India actually wrote detailed instructions on how to build a battery. There's actually so many examples of these kinds of finds that archaeology has a term for them. 
They're called uparts or out of place artifacts. I encourage you to look it up for yourself. It sounds crazy, but in Africa, they've actually unearthed a site of uranium ore that was already extracted and appeared to have been used as an ancient nuclear reactor. Seriously, I'm not making this up. I'll link to some stories in the comments. Again, this doesn't fit the evolutionary model that we evolved slowly from inferior ape men, but the weight of the evidence definitely supports the Bible narrative, and it parallels Plato's story of Atlantis pretty well. Finally, the Bible's description of the flood also resembles Plato's description of the demise of Atlantis. The Bible speaks of the first day of the flood and says, "The same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened." It seems that there was almost definitely great earthquakes as water broke out from inside the earth along with the rain. So when God destroyed the earth with a flood, there would have also been earthquakes just like Plato's account of Atlantis. And it's likely that many cities were covered in one day and one night. The similarities are remarkable. So, is it possible that Plato heard a story about the flood of Noah's day and embellished it and changed it until he came out with this story of the city of Atlantis? Well, there's no shortage of flood legends that he may have heard. Chief among them, of course, being the book of Genesis. But actually, There are more than 270 stories from different cultures around the world about a devastating flood, from ancient Babylon with the Epic of Gilgamesh, an account almost identical to the biblical narrative, to China and Australia. Practically every culture retells the story through oral tradition that has been altered over many years, some more than others. The ancient Hawaiians actually have a flood story about a man named Nuu. He is said to have made a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals. In their story, the waters came up over all the earth and killed all the people. Only Nuu and his family were saved. Once again, these legends don't fit with the evolutionist worldview, but they fit perfectly with the biblical narrative that all people descended from Noah and his sons after the population was reset by a worldwide flood. After the flood, as people began spreading around the world again, they brought with them stories of the flood. Changed slightly with each oral retelling, they eventually became different from the original story, but their consistency around the world provides proof that the biblical account is in fact accurate. So is this where Plato got the idea for the city of Atlantis? Did he hear one of these stories passed down through the millennia and choose to write his own version? It's certainly possible, and I'm convinced it's the most reasonable explanation for the similarities between Plato's story and the biblical account of the world before the flood. Of course, this is just my theory, but I think it's plausible. What do you think? <laughs>